uh, that we'll be uh, digging into a little bit more in the sermon in just a few minutes is uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. You can find it on page 540 of the Bibles in your pews. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Wisdom makes one's face shine, and the hardness of one's countenance is changed. Keep the king's command because of your sacred oath. Do not be terrified. Go from his presence and do not delay when the matter is unpleasant, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is powerful, and who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys a command will meet no harm, and the wise mind will know the time and the way. For every matter has its time and way, although the troubles of mortals lie heavy upon them. Indeed, they do not know what is to be, for who can tell them how it will be? No one has power over the wind to restrain the wind, or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from the battle, nor does wickedness deliver those who practice it. All this I observed, applying my mind to all that is done under the sun, while one person exercises authority over another to the other's hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the human heart is fully set to do evil. Though sinners do evil a hundred times and prolong their lives, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they stand in fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will they prolong their days like a shadow, because they do not stand in fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked, and there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commend enjoyment, for there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and enjoy themselves, for this will go with them in their toil through the days of life that God gives them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how one's eyes see sleep neither day nor night, then I saw all the work of God that no one can find out what is happening under the sun. However much they may toil in seeking, they will not find it out. Even though those who are wise claim to know, they cannot find it out. Our second reading is from the letter to uh, Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. You'll find it on page uh, 963 of your Bibles. I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, we're going to continue now to think a bit about 
that chapter from Ecclesiastes 8 that we just read, and particularly to think about uh, the idea of power. Uh, we thought last week about wisdom. We saw how the teacher says that in order to be wise, you need to come to grips with the reality of death. Uh, today we see what he has to say about how to deal with power in the world, power in your life, power used against you in all kinds of ways particularly. Uh, it doesn't take much of an awareness of what's going on around you to realise that the world is full of injustice on both the political, social level and on personal level as well. Uh, we see all kinds of political injustice. We see it, for example, in uh, the government of Syria using bombs and chemical weapons against their own civilians. We see it in the lives of the 40 million slaves around the world in brothels and brick kilns and all manner of forced labour. We see it in our own government's cruel uh, treatment and detention of frightened and fleeing families seeking refuge on our shores. We see it in the corruption of politics by the influence of money in places like Australia as well, of course, as around the world. The thing about injustice is that it's always personal. Uh, governments and armies are pretty vague. Uh, they're not particularly in your face for those of us living uh, here in Australia at least. But the injustices committed in their names are deeply personal, for example, to the mother who's lost her child to their bombs, to their weapons. And even those kinds of injustice, uh, that, that those kinds of injustice remain pretty remote to us in our experience. We experience injustices of all kinds in our day-to-day -day lives as well, and it's just as real. We experience injustice in our bosses who are bullying and unsupportive and dismissive of our work, in relationships with overbearing parents and manipulative friends, in the blame games that sometimes characterise our family gatherings, in the terrible and terrifying prevalence of domestic and family violence in our communities. We see and experience injustice all around us, and the thing is that injustice is always about an abuse of power. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, here at St John's, we have uh, an ongoing uh, relationship of prayer and support with an organisation called uh, International Justice Mission. Uh, they're a Christian organisation who partner with uh, police and prosecutors, judges, social workers around the world to restore justice to the poor. Uh, they're convinced, and they have the results to prove it, that when laws are enforced, violence and injustice against the poor stops. Uh, working against injustice means, for IJM, working against the abuse of power and working to ensure the just, the right exercise of power. Uh, IJM's uh, founder, a guy by the name of Gary Haugen, uh, he's write, written a great little book called Good News About Injustice, uh, about how God is working against injustice in his world uh, in a way that has actually inspired the work of IJM. Uh, we're going to see what he has to say about uh, injustice. We've got some quotes up on the screen. We flick past that one, past that one. There we go. Excellent. Here's what Gary Haugen from IJM says about injustice. He says, Justice occurs on earth when power and authority between people is exercised in conformity with God's standards of moral excellence. There's always a distribution of power among, among, uh, among people in every human society. Some have more, some have less. He continues, uh, All kinds of power is distributed. Political, economic, social, moral, religious, cultural, familial, coercive, financial, intellectual, and so on. And when power is exercised in a way that violates God's standards, we call it injustice. Injustice occurs when power is misused to take from others what God has given them, namely their life, dignity, liberty, or the fruits of their love and labour. 
CIJM works among the victims of some of the world's most extreme, though in many ways common, instances of injustice. And this is what they've discovered, that injustice is always about someone using their power for their own gain, using their power to uh, oppress uh, and push down those who have less power. They work with some pretty extreme instances of injustice, but other instances of injustice are much closer to home. They're no less real, though, and no less abusive. Uh, a recent example is uh, all the revelations coming out about the abusive culture of Hollywood. Uh, star after star, industry figure after industry figure, are being accused of abusing their power over the women and the men who they work with. And the infuriating thing about it, I don't know if you've felt this as you've seen those news stories, the infuriating thing about it is that they think they're just going to get away with it. And so often they do. The Harvey Weinsteins of our world have no interest in wielding their power justly in order to benefit others. They abuse their power for their own gain. What we're going to do is talk a little bit about these kinds of uh, power dynamics. Uh, there's a slide we'll put up uh, which will give you a bit of an idea of where we're going. Uh, these kind of phenomena that we're talking about, the way that power is abused on the big scale and on the little scale, uh, it's what we often refer to as power dynamics. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk then a little bit about the reality of power. Uh, the teacher says to us that if you want to know how to live in light of power in the world, you've got to get to grips with the reality of what power is like. So we'll talk about the reality of power. Having got a bit of a handle on that reality, we can think about living with power. And when we see how the teacher actually instructs us, the advice he gives us for living in a world where power is so often abused, we can actually see how, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're empowered to, to live with joy, even in the midst of injustice. But first, let's think a little bit more about power dynamics. Uh, power dynamics are a feature of uh, every relationship. Uh, sometimes the dynamics of power between two people are beautifully balanced, as in uh, a really strong friendship or a happy marriage. Usually, whether or not it's acknowledged, there's some level of imbalance in the way that power works out in a relationship. Now, that isn't in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, it's right and proper that governments have power, have authority over the people whom they serve. It's right that teachers have some authority and power over those they teach, parents over their children. But the balance of power, whichever way it's tilted, always needs to be very carefully managed. Uh, here's an example uh, from uh, a management consultant about how this uh, works out in business land. Uh, a guy called Patrick Lencioni, who some of you will know as uh, a management consultant from America. Uh, and he tells a story about a company whose effectiveness was being undermined by an overbearing and aggressive CEO. Uh, so Lencioni had the CEO's direct reports fill out anonymous questionnaires about the leadership of their boss and arranged a meeting for them all to sit down together with him and discuss the results of the questionnaires. Uh, the boss was uh, described variously as unsupportive, insulting, hard to please, uh, hard to know what it was that he was expecting, dismissive of, dismissive, bleh, dismissive of people's work. Now, when the CEO sat down with his staff to go through the results, he asked them what they thought. And, of course, there were murmurs all around the table of, oh, no, of course not, and I love working with you, and you're the most supportive boss I've ever had. Uh, the CEO turned around and said, oh, right, I was a bit surprised by the feedback because that's kind of what I thought, right? that's how I thought you'd, you'd think about me. And the irony, of course, is that it was those very people in the room who were saying you're the best boss ever who'd given him this negative feedback. You see, there's a, an imbalanced power dynamic going on there, isn't there? Uh, the whole story is really completely predictable. Uh, the uh, staff were never going to confront their boss to his face in the same way as they would in an anonymous survey. 
The reason is because of those power dynamics between a CEO and his staff. Now, you'll no doubt have relationships in which the power dynamics are tipped against you, in which you're the weaker partner in whatever way that looks. You'll have other relationships in which the dynamic is tipped toward you, where you have the power. And you'll have experienced power being used abusive, abusively against you in various ways. And you'll know of times when you've abused the power that you have, however small it might be. So the injustices that we see and experience, I think, raise a series of questions for us. They raise questions like, how will you manage the power dynamics at work in the world and in your own personal life? How will you bear up when power is used unjustly against you? How will you wield whatever power you have, no matter how small and insignificant it might be, in a way that actually lifts others up instead of tearing them down? And so to work that out, to see what the teacher has to say to us about that, we need to think about the reality of power. Now, the teacher says, uh, as he did about death last week, that you need to be a realist. Uh, Just like wisdom requires us to face up to death, so living well in the world, uh, in a world where the powerful abuse their power, means getting a clear picture of what it is that's really going on. And the teacher says there are two things that we need to recognise. Firstly, we need to recognise the reality that power in our world is often abused, and that's actually just the way that it is in this world. And secondly, that uh, the reality that power itself, like so much else in life, is vanity, is absurd, is limited, goes nowhere in the end. So firstly, the reality that power is often abused. We've already uh, seen the reality of that uh, abuse in some of the injustices that we've talked about already. And what the teacher impresses upon us is that these abuses of power are actually a key characteristic of the world that we live in. Uh, have a look at 8 verse 9. The teacher says, all this I observed, applying my mind to all that is done under the sun, while one person exercises authority over another to the other's hurt. He says, looking around at everything that happens on earth, what he sees is that this is just the way it is, that people in in authority, people with power, use it for their own gain, to hurt others. It's just the way things are. And so he says, you'd better come to terms with it. In a world where sin has messed things up, the abuse of power like this is actually to be expected, even though it's never to be tolerated or applauded. And in saying this, the teacher's really in lockstep with the rest of the scriptures. Uh, The abuse of power actually is right there at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, we read the story of sin entering the world in the Garden of Eden as the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to distrust and disobey their creator. The result is a breakdown in the power dynamics between husband and wife. Uh, She will desire to possess him, we read, and he will rule over her, both terms indicating a struggle for power over the other. And then Genesis 4 goes on to show how those broken power dynamics spiral out of control as Cain murders his brother Abel, as Lamech kills a boy simply for calling him names, and then boasts about his murders to his terrified wife in order to keep her in line. We live in a world full of injustice, distorted by imbalanced power dynamics and people who take abusive advantage of them. And as Christians, none of this should surprise us. It's pretty much the picture that the Bible gives us of what human beings under the power of sin are like. And so the teacher says, face facts, the abuse of power and justice in our world is real. But power, the teacher tells us, is also absurd, is also vanity. Like everything else in this life, it eventually comes to nothing. The reality of power is that it is frequently abused, but also limited. 
Uh, in verses 6 to 10, the teacher tells us why the king, who does whatever he pleases, is nevertheless not as powerful as he first seems. Uh, why is this so? Well, the teacher tells us because not even a king can tell the future. Not even the king can tell you what's going to come around the corner in the next day, let alone the next decade or the rest of his life. Not even the king has power over the wind to tell it where to go. Not even the king has power over the day of death. Uh, the teacher actually uses a, a kind of clever little play on words here. Uh, as some of you might know, uh, the Hebrew word for wind also means breath. It's often used to mean the kind of life force, what it is that animates you, what's going on when you're breathing. And he's kind of saying no one, not even the king, has power over death or power over life. He's got power over not very much at all. The wicked king who abuses his power can no more escape death, the teacher says, than a soldier can get a leave of absence once the battle has begun. So you see, even power, even the power of kings, even the power of the most powerful in our world is brought to nothing in the face of death. The abuse of power is real, and it's a characteristic of human life in a world disfigured by sin. But it's also absurd. It's vanity. It comes to nothing, limited by the even more fundamental reality of death. And that's what the teacher says we need to work out, we need to have in our minds if we're going to learn how to live with power. Because even though power is limited, even though it's absurd, even though it comes to nothing, those who abuse their power can still do real damage. And so wisdom, knowing how to live well in the world, requires us to learn to live in light of that reality. We have to learn to live with power as a factor in our world. Now, I think there are several ways that you can respond to the reality of power in our world. I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can see as well. Option one is to despair. Uh, in the face of all the injustice that you see and an experience in the world, you might just decide to give up. Uh, and so you'll get about the business then of self-protection. You might stop trying to repair those damaged relationships where the power imbalances are all out of whack. You might decide that it's not really worth speaking about and acting on those justice issues that used to fire you up. You might just kind of retreat into a corner and keep to yourself so that no one has any contact with you to be able to abuse their power over you. Option two is indifference. In the face of all the injustice that you see and experience, you might just kind of, you know, shrug your shoulders. Oh, well, it happens. That's the way the world is. And so you get into the business of self-preservation, doing whatever the powerful in your life want you to do, mimicking them as far as you're able, making whatever compromises need to be made in order to stay on side. Uh, injustice becomes just a fact of life, something to be factored into how you live, and so you'd better make the best of it. Option three is indignation. In the face of all the injustice you see and experience, you might well just well up with rage, be full of burning anger. Now, of course, there's a right time for this. Indignation is something that God feels when he sees sin, something that he calls on his people to see when they see sin as well. There are right times for indignation, and some abuses of power call for it, even at great cost. Uh, the outrage we're seeing in Hollywood at the moment is a good example. The domestic and family violence in our own communities, the slavery confronted by IJM, these demand outrage and immediate action. But you see, as a way of life, in all the little instances of the abuse of power you're going to experience as you walk through this world, as a way of life, indignation won't get you very far at all. You might rail against the unfairness of how you've been treated or even the unfairness of how others around you are treated. 
But what often happens is that you end up in the business of self-assertion. You decide you'll do whatever you can to make sure that the power dynamics of your relationships are ones where you always come out on top. Because the only way to ensure that no one abuses their power over you is to use your power to stop them first. In other words, uh, starting out from righteous indignation, you end up taking out your horror at the abuse of power against you and others out on those very people. What starts as indignation at being unfairly treated can easily result in unfairly treating others yourself. Now, you see, these three ways of living with power recognise the reality of power's abuse, recognise the reality of injustice in our world. But they don't recognise the reality of power's vanity, of its absurdity, of the fact that it comes to nothing in the end. In despair, we assume that power has the last word, in indifference, that power is just the way the world works, in indignation, that the only strategy to fight power is power itself. But, of course, power has a limit, as the teacher wants to impress upon us. Power can't have the last word. It can't be the only word. It can't be a strategy that works in the end, because death makes it nothing. And so the teacher suggests a fourth option. Uh, Option four is what the the teacher suggests. I like to call it shrewdness. Uh, You see, the first five verses of this chapter uh, seem to be addressing a member of the royal court, some kind of royal advisor to the king. He's someone we see in verse 2 who's made an oath to obey the king's command. The king seems to be someone, uh, like lots of people who have power, whose mood and decisions are fairly fickle. He does whatever he pleases. And so the teacher advises this uh, royal advisor to leave the king's presence without delay. Uh, Even when the decision the king has made or the errand he sent his advisor on is an unpleasant one, is one the advisor disagrees with him about, uh, one that the advisor might even think is a bit unseemly and itself unjust, he shouldn't argue or object. The best thing for him to do is to just get out of there. Uh, The king's word is powerful, the teacher says. Who can say to him, what are you doing? And so whoever obeys a command will meet no harm. But you've got to see as well what the teacher says at either end of this advice. At the beginning, uh, in verse 2, he says, Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid of the king, even in, the, in his fickleness, even in his uh, toing and froing between different decisions. Don't be terrified. And then at the end, at the end of verse 5, the wise man will know the time and the way. You see, the teacher is instructing this royal advisor not to antagonise the king unnecessarily because his power is real, he can do real damage, but at the same time not to fall into the trap of thinking that the king's power has the last word. Uh, If you're wise about it, there's no reason to fear, the teacher says, because there's a time and a place for speaking up. There's a time and a place for confronting power. But there's no reason to put yourself in the way of harm from a powerful but fickle person just for for the sake of it. Wait for the right moment. And in fact, the wise man proves to be even wiser than the king himself. You see in verse 3 that there's an unpleasant matter that the king sets his mind on. But in verse 6 we read that every matter has its time and its way. Even the matter that the king has set his heart on isn't necessarily being done in the right time and the way. And the the wise person will be able to see whether or not the king's made a good decision. The wise man knows that the king does what he pleases, but might not actually be doing what's wise. And so he's to be shrewd. He's to be cautious and patient. He's to take his time in deciding his course of action and wait for the right moment. Now, in in our context, I think, this is basically uh, advice for public servants. 
Uh, people who work in the public service have to deal with the fickleness of the uh, politicians who run their departments all the time. Uh, here's a couple of depictions of the, the working life of public servants. Uh, I don't know if you can read the uh, caption there. Uh, public servant giving frank and fearless advice in the future. And the minister walks along and you know, hangs him up in shackles. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the next one I quite enjoy as well. Uh, what do we do without all the latest buzzwords, the latest jargon, the latest, uh, the latest performance tools, says one public servant. And uh, their colleague replied, well, just get on with it. Uh, I feel like this is going to be a pretty common experience for lots of people who work in the public service. There's all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, swilling around as uh, politicians go backwards and forwards in their decisions on things. But the wise bureaucrat, the wise uh, public servant knows that one day their current boss is going to be replaced by somebody else. Uh, the people they work for have their own pet policies and projects, but one day there'll be other pet policies and projects. And if new polling data comes in, the policy and the plan could change at a moment's notice anyway. And so she keeps her head down, she learns how to get along, she focuses on the tasks that she knows really matter, the things that might not get so much media attention but do actually keep the lights on. And perhaps she quietly works away at her own side projects that she, with far more experience and a longer-term view than her politician boss, thinks might actually have real long-term effects. It's advice that can easily be translated, I think, into pretty much any workplace, can't it? Uh, keep the boss happy, pick your moment for disagreeing, get on with the important stuff. But it's not only advice for our working lives, uh, this kind of shrewdness also means in our relationships knowing when to make a big deal about an argument, when to let it slide, when to get angry, when to wait for another moment. Uh, it means recognising that there's actually a middle way between uh, out and out capitulation to the power dynamics in the relationship that are going on and fighting against them with all your might on the other hand. If you're shrewd, you'll know how to get the most out of life, the teacher says, even when the power dynamics are tilted against you. And shrewdness like this is about more than just self-preservation. Uh, it's not just about uh, getting on with the job in a way that means you don't suffer harm. Shrewdness recognises both the reality and the absurdity of power, and what it does is it makes space for ordinary life in the midst of it, for the good things, the small but good things that God gives us. You see, the teacher brings his advice about power to uh, its culmination in verse 15. There he writes, So I commend enjoyment, for there's nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and enjoy themselves. For this will go with them in their toil through the days of their life that God gives them under the sun. Uh, you see, and you know this, right? You know that spending time uh, over food and good wine with family and friends, like that's one of the most enjoyable things you can do, no matter what your work life is like, no matter what, be, what might be going on in your other relationships. And you see what the teacher says? He says that this enjoyment will go with them in their toil. Uh, that kind of enjoyment actually gives a richness to your life, even when everything else around you is not working out quite the way you might want it to. Even in your toiling under injustice, the goodness of the little things remains. The important things that the reality of death throws into stark relief aren't undermined by the abuse of power, because power itself is limited by death as well. When confronted by abuses of power, the self-protection of the despairing, the self-preservation of the indifferent, the self-assertion of the indignant, these can actually blind you to the good things that are still going on in your life. But shrewdness makes space for joy. If you're shrewd, as the teacher recommends, if you get the reality of the abuse of power along with the reality of its limitations, 
then you'll be able to manage those power dynamics wisely, always remembering that no power can ultimately take away those things that have the greatest depth, that have the greatest meaning and the greatest joy. And you'll find space for those joys, even in the midst of injustice. The thing is, the teacher's telling us that when we get this right, we'll actually be empowered for joy. Uh, Here's just one example, I think, of how that kind of shrewd dealing with power, shrewdness in the face of injustice, can make space for joy. Uh, I don't know all that much about uh, classical music. Uh, I'm uh, not that into it. Um, You know, I I like it, but it's not my favourite thing. But there's a really, really cool story that I have uh, learned uh, about uh, someone who is one of the leading composers of the 20th century, uh, a French composer uh, named uh, Olivier Messiaen. Uh, I have no idea if I'm saying that right, by the way. I don't know French. Does anyone know French? Yes. James Watson says, thumbs up, Messiaen. Great. Good. I feel like in French, basically, you just kind of trail off at the end, and it works. Messiaen. Yeah. Great. Good. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, Olivier Messiaen, a French composer and a Christian. Uh, now, he had published a, a number of pieces uh, and made a name for himself before the Second World War put his life on hold. Uh, He served in the Army Medical Corps, and in 1940, as German soldiers marched across France, he and several fellow soldiers were caught. Uh, Messiaen became a prisoner of war and was taken to a labour camp in Germany. And in the midst of the oppression, the injustice, the abuse of power in a German prisoner of war camp, he wrote what many consider to be his masterpiece. You see, in this camp with him were a violinist, a clarinetist, and a cellist, uh, all of them competent and experienced players. And so Messiaen began writing. Uh, The quartet began rehearsing in the bathroom of one of the cell blocks. Uh, The composer was uh, a pianist and an organist by uh, training, uh, and he didn't have a piano or an organ, so he simply had to kind of imagine his part while they rehearsed for the time being and kind of work out how it would fit in with the three other musicians. He found uh, support, uh, a little bit of uh, friendship even, uh, with a German guard who was sympathetic, who procured instruments for them and even found an upright piano uh, for him to play. And then on January the 15th, 1941, in Barrack 27B, in sub-zero midwinter temperatures, hundreds of prisoners and soldiers sat down to listen to the four performers. The wounded lay on stretchers in the front, The composer himself played a run-down, out-of-tune, upright piano that he fought with all the way through the performance. The piece of music that they played is named Quartet for the End of Time. Uh, It's not getting at uh, the end of their uh, their imprisonment. It's not the end of time in terms of uh, being released from prison at the end of the war that they were obviously looking forward to. Uh, It was based on several texts from the New Testament book of Revelation. And what Messiaen was trying to get at is that uh, this is a time where injustice rules, where power is abused, but actually a time is coming, God says, when justice will be the only form of power in the world. It's a beautiful, uh, haunting piece of music. I really, you should go and listen to it if you haven't heard it before. The whole, the whole thing, eight movements, it's about 45 minutes long. And it just evokes this sense of the relentless passage of time and how it changes and disfigures things, and yet at the same time, the way that the natural world remains consistent. Uh, Really, he could have written it about the book of Ecclesiastes, I think. The teacher would be pretty uh, happy with that kind of theme through a piece of music. But it's also a deeply joyful piece of music, uh, especially the final movement, which is titled Praise to the Immortality of Jesus. You see, for Messian, it was a way for him to maintain his joy in God, even in the midst of the injustice he was suffering, and he knew what the abuse of power looked like up close. Many years later, he reflected, 
that the greatest benefit that I drew from the experience was that in the midst of 30,000 prisoners, I was the only man who was not one. You see, in that moment, Messian said, he was not a prisoner despite his circumstances, despite the abuse of power that he was experiencing. Because he recognised that even though power is real, even though it hurts, it's also absurd, it's limited. It was going to come to nothing in the end. And because power is limited, it was possible for him to make music, even in the midst of injustice. So the question for us is, how can we do that? How can you do that? How can you make music even in the face of the abuses of power that you experience? How can you be shrewd enough to make space for joy even as others abuse their power over you? How can you make space for giving joy to others as you use your own power, however limited it is, in the world? The teacher says, face the reality that power is real and revel in the reality that power is limited. Um, But of course, I don't know if you've noticed this as we've read Ecclesiastes, uh, the teacher makes these kind of just like blanket statements all the time. Just recognise that power is real, just recognise that it's absurd, and you'll be right. Uh, We know in our lives that it's not that straightforward. The teacher makes a pretty blanket statement, but actually we can say more than the teacher can. Because we know someone who the teacher never met. We know a king who is all-powerful, who made the stars and the planets who has the power not only to give to, to take life, but to give it as well. We know a powerful king who has nevertheless never abused his power. You see, Jesus used his power to calm the wind and the waves, to heal a bleeding woman and to raise a little dead girl to life, to comfort the afflicted and to lift up the oppressed. And his power was most clearly on display at the very moment where he gave it up. At the very moment where he undid all of the power plays of our world by letting himself go to death. With great shrewdness, Jesus let the powerful abuse their power over him, sentencing an innocent man to death. You see, he knew that their power would come to nothing. But in using his power to give his power away, he received it back again. And having been raised to new life as the king over all creation, he's promised us that he will return once and for all to destroy those who abuse their power, to usher in a new world of peace where power and justice go hand in hand as we feast at our king's table. How can you find joy in a world where the abuse of power is the norm? How can you bear up when people treat you unfairly and abuse their power over you? Where can you find the power to face injustice without resorting to mere self-protection or self-preservation or to self-assertion? You see, the way to actually live a life of joy, to live a life of justice in the big things and the small things, is to look to the one who used his power for you. If you get that, then you'll have the kind of power that our friends at IJM have to confront all kinds of evils and injustice that you and I can barely imagine to do it day in, day out in the confidence that the one who has all power is working in them and through them. You'll be able to bear up under those unjust relationships where people seek to manipulate you, to belittle you, and you'll be able to use whatever small amount of power you have in your life for the good of others, to support the work of people like IJM, to seek to actually lift people up who are weaker, who are less powerful than you. By looking at the one who has all the power in heaven and on earth and put that power to work for you, to free you from the consequences of your own abuses of power, however small, to free you from the hurt you've received from others. 
If you look to him, you see that you have his power at work in you to fill you with joy, to enable you to live a life of joy. Because as Paul himself writes, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. If you want to work against those imbalanced power structures in your life, if you want to bear up under injustice and do justice to those around you and keep your joy all along, look to him. Amen.